men, wrote the Scottish journalist Charles Mackay, think in herds. It will be seen that they go mad in herds while they only recover their senses slowly and one by one. My name is Joe Walker, and three years ago, trying to understand Australia's obsession with residential real estate, I began researching housing bubbles. I read almost everything I could find. Increasingly, I came to view the question of bubbles as not just a topic of interest to the fortunes of my country, but a vehicle to explore deep questions of human nature. There's a long literature that gleefully lays bare the madness of crowds, from Mackay to Galbraith, Minsky and Kindleberger to Schiller and Chancellor. But it left me with a nagging question. No one in a bubble ever thought she was crazy. So what is going on here? In this series, I'm using the prism of financial bubbles to tackle an eternal question. What does it mean to be a rational person? I'll be guided by five world experts who will show me that we're not quite so befuddled as popular narratives would have us believe. I'm inviting you to come with me on this journey to reconsider what you might have been told and to give rational minds a second chance. I'd like to express a very rational thank you to Blinkist for sponsoring this series on Rational Minds. You probably know about the product by now, but I did want to add that I recently discovered that Blinkist also has audiobooks on their app, which you can purchase at member prices. I've been listening to Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, and I noticed that Blinkist also has John Quiggin's Economics in Two Lessons, which I'll be sure to listen to after I finish Hazlitt's book. If you want to sign up to Blinkist, go to Blinkist.com slash swagman, where you can get 25% off an annual subscription, as well as trying Blinkist Premium free for seven days. That's Blinkist.com slash swagman. You're listening to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome to the final episode in this series on Rational Minds. The point of this series has not been to deny the existence of irrationality altogether. Rather, it has attempted to swing the pendulum back, to push it away from the claim that bubbles are phenomena that are quintessentially about individual madness, to question what is rational. The exact mixture of rationality and irrationality that generates bubbles, their precise recipe, remains beyond me. But two themes have emerged in this series so far. Number one, most people, including those who participate in bubbles, are just trying to do their best in an uncertain world. And two, we are social creatures, and bubbles are best thought of as social phenomena. I hope this series has made you think. Perhaps it has raised more questions than answers. If so, that is okay. I feel you. We're in the same boat. And so far, we haven't really directly tackled the question, what does it mean to be a rational person? 
Well, this episode will hopefully deliver some of the goods. Now, behavioral economics claims to have taken a great leap forward in uncorking the mysteries of human rationality, or rather, irrationality. Wikipedia's list of cognitive biases contains no fewer than 185 misfirings of the mind, from the availability bias to the zero-sum bias. But how does an animal so dumb that its brain is home to a zoo of cognitive biases become so ecologically dominant that it can stick every other animal in actual zoos? This episode seeks to answer that question, and with one of the world's most distinguished thinkers on the topic, no less. Gerd Gigerenza is a German psychologist famous for his debates about rationality with Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Gerd is Director Emeritus of the Center for Adaptive Behavior and Cognition at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin, and he is probably the world's leading authority on ecological rationality and how heuristics make us smart. Without much further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the great Gerd Gigerenza. Gerd Gigerenza, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be with you. Gerd, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time, both for selfish reasons and for altruistic reasons. Selfishly, I'd like to pick your brain on some questions I've been wrestling with for a while. Altruistically, I'm excited for my audience to hear your ideas, especially when they might have heard only one side of the story about heuristics. But it strikes me that despite being reasonably familiar with your work, I know next to nothing about you, uh, except that you're German <laughs> and you play the banjo. So I thought we could begin with your background. Gerd, where were you born? No, I was born in Lower Bavaria, that's uh, at the end of the world, and grew up in Munich. That is a beautiful city where many people would like to live. What are some of your early memories of growing up in Munich? <laughs> it's the Oktoberfest, of course. It's, it's being uh, very different from today, being a, a free little boy who can run around all day, at least after making homework. And there's no phone uh, that parents use to control where you are, what you're doing. Uh, so it was freedom. Why were you originally attracted to studying psychology? Oh, <clears throat> I think that happened to many people. I had a wonderful teacher at high school, and he was a biologist, but he had also a diploma in psychology. And he always told us something hmm, that we found very exciting. So I decided, why not study that field? What did you find most exciting about it? Uh, first, <clears throat> I knew next to nothing. I entered psychology having read Freud, uh, Jung, Adler, and only to find out that was no longer up to date. And what was psychology at the beginning was um, yeah, statistics, which I hadn't expected. <laughs> so I learned statistics and only later realized how important that is. 
you received your PhD from the University of Munich in 1977 and became a professor of psychology there the very same year. Then in the early 1980s, you spent a life-changing year at the Center for Interdisciplinary Research in Bielefeld, Germany, studying with a group of philosophers and historians the probabilistic revolution that occurred in the 17th through 19th centuries. What did you learn during that year that changed your life? No, I learned the importance of interdisciplinary research. Uh, that was a group consisting of people from many, many fields. They were all brought together to study how ideas of probability and chance have transformed the sciences, but also everyday life. And uh, the, this year in Bielefeld at the Center for Interdisciplinary Research also transformed my personal life because I met my wife there. She was then an assistant professor in Harvard. And so we got together by chance in a year on chance. But interdisciplinary research, is that is a lesson that I learned. There are so many topics like rationality and even probability which do not respect the borders we have erected huh, around our um, hometowns of disciplines. And the entire disciplines are an invention of the 20th century. They weren't existing in this way before. And I later used this insight when I became a director at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development to set up a group that consisted from people from psychology, economics, uh, from business, from mathematics, from computer science, AI, engineering, philosophy, evolution, biology, and other people who were really interested in learning what other disciplines know and how they approach the idea of rationality. Are most academics territorial or do they welcome interdisciplinarity? There are two ways to do science. One is territorial. You identify with a discipline or better, a sub-discipline uh, as tiny as possible and try to become the king. The other way to doing science is you fall in love with a topic and then try to understand this topic from many, many, many sides and collaborate with others. So uh, I would say in, in the field of decision theory, most, of, most people go the first way and try to uh, have a, a specialized view about something. So often they don't even know the history of their own field. And that means one doesn't understand why do I am asking this question? And why I'm running experiments to resolve this question. And the question has been handed down by others. And in order to be innovative, you have to change the questions. It's not about the answers in the first place. It's about finding the right kind of questions. What was the probabilistic revolution? <laughs> now, the probabilistic revolution is the transition from a world of certainty 
into one of uncertainty. So uh, physics has been seen at the time of Newton as a discipline that's about, yeah, certainty. And although Newton knew about probability, he did not apply it to physics. So Newton was also the head of the mint in his other job, where he used uh, very similar techniques as modern statistical quality control to find out whether a coin has still the right uh, content of gold. And here he used statistics, but not in science. And the probabilistic revolution is the, the uh, yeah, that probability conquered sciences itself, and not just the methods of science. So in economics, it took a long time. In psychology, it also took some time. For instance, uh, methods like statistics were used in psychology before, say, 1950 to test hypotheses, but not to understand the processes in the mind. So the idea that the mind could be a kind of intuitive statistician occurred, did, did not occur anyone in psychology before about 1950. So Piaget and Inhelder were one of the first ones with their book on the uh, uh, development of probabilistic thinking in children, published 1951 in French. It took more than 20 years until this research was translated into English. Very different from Piaget's other book. So the, the, what we think today is yeah, common sense that the mind would be an intuitive statistician or a kind of computer, and that cognition is computing, was absent before 1950. I'm going to ask a very innocent sounding question, but why is the world that we live in uncertain? Why is the world better characterized as a large world rather than a small world, to use Savage's terminology? Yeah. So the, uh, the probabilistic revolution is about taming uncertainty, taming uncertainty by probability theory. That meant you could only tame part of uncertainty by probability theory, and you couldn't tame the rest. That was always clear until, yeah, uh, in the last century where uh, some people were thinking that probability theory applies to every kind of uncertainty. For instance, some kind of subjective Bayesianism. So the, the distinction between situations where we can calculate the probability or at least estimate them reliably and those where this is not the case is the distinction between risk and uncertainty to use the modern terms uh, that distinction is essential because the tools that you can use to tame uh, uncertainty so that you can use for risk are not the same ones that you use in the case of uncertainty. So probability theory 
is the tool to deal with risks. But it gives you only limited ideas if you apply to situations of uncertainty. So <clears throat> let's define that clearly, because mm. uh, most of the time, risk and uncertainty are even used interchangeable. That's the original sin. So uh, in Savage's words, uh, <clears throat> a small world, that is a world of risk, is defined uh, so you have the full knowledge of all future states, so the exhaustive and mutually exclusive set of future states of the world, and also the full knowledge of all of their consequences, and hopefully the probabilities. So if you play the roulette, you are in a situation of risk. The future states that can happen are numbers between 1 and 36 in green, and you know the consequences and probabilities. Uh, playing roulette or lotteries, you do not know anything, you do not need anything beyond probability theory. So you do, do not know heuristics. You, you don't need uh, yeah, intuition. You even don't know it, have to know anything. But in situations of uncertainty, that's different. So here, the set of future states may not be known, their consequences may not be known, or the probabilities may not be known. That's often called radical uncertainty if the future states or consequences are not known, as opposed to ambiguity if only the probabilities are not known. And here, and I'm very interested in what tools do people have and use in order to deal with uncertainty, as opposed to just probability theory. Does uncertainty sit on a continuum or is it binary? For example, could we say something like mm. stock markets are more uncertain than housing markets? Would that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's true. The distinction between risk and un uncertainty is uh, it, a continuum. So you can calculate some things, but others not. So. Uh, in a Las Vegas casino, uh, you can calculate the uh, and also hedge the risks by having many tables. But the great losses occurred because of unforeseen things happening. So when a tiger attacked and uh, or some miscontrolled uh, person dynamited it. The casino. So these are things, all unforeseen uh, things. So yes, it's usually a continuum. And uh, basically, you need to both. You need to look at facts, at numbers, in a typical situation, but also realize that the numbers that you have are numbers from yesterday, and the future may be different. That's the limit of big data. If you're in a stable world where the future is like the past, use big data, rely on it, fine-tune your algorithms about the past and try to optimize. You always optimize relative to data on the past and assumptions. But the more you are in situation of uncertainty, so investment is typically a situation of uncertainty, uh, much of healthcare and diagnosis, or uh, the corona uh, <clears throat> crisis, 
we are living at the moment there and experiences it. Nobody knows how it's going on. And these, or just to find the best romantic partner. These are all situations of uncertainty where unforeseen things can happen. And here, uh, you just can't prob- uh, calculate the future. And if you do, and if you confuse a situation uncertainty with one of risk, then that has a name, that's the turkey illusion. It goes back to a story by uh, the uh, philosopher Russell, and Nassim Taleb popularized it, and it's an important concept. So before the, so the turkey illusion is, <clears throat> assume you are a turkey, it's the first day of your life, a man comes in, and you fear he may kill me but he feeds you. Next day, the man comes again. You fear he might kill me, but he feeds you. The third day, the same thing. After, if you use Bayesian updating as a turkey, and every day, hmm, the probability that the man will feed you and not kill you goes up a little bit, and on day 100, it is higher than ever before, but it's the day before Thanksgiving, and you're dead meat. So the turkey missed an important uh, piece of information. It was not in a world of risk. And probably turkeys are blamed, uh, but uh, it's people who commit the turkey illusion. And uh, if you look at what happened for the last financial crisis, where the optimism increased and increased, till shortly before the crisis happened. And the reason are similar mathematical models being used, as in the case of the Turkish Bayesian updating, which create an illusion of certainty until everything breaks down. So we need to be aware of the Turkey illusion and take uncertainty seriously. Give us a quick definition of Bayesian inference. Now, Bayesian inference is named after Thomas Bayes, who um, uh, published the paper, uh, exactly his friend Price published it, it had no impact, if not Laplace had independently rediscovered it. So it is, it is a way to what in modern terminology to uh, calculate the probability of hypothesis given data. That's also called direct probability. And uh, uh, there is a formula, which you can find in Bayes' original paper, which is even in the easiest case where you have a binary event like uh, cancer or not cancer in a binary test, like a positive mammogram or negative mammogram, it's very hard for most people to understand. I can give you an example. The point of the example will be that uh, with probabilities and conditional probabilities, people have a hard time to think. The second point is that doesn't mean that people are somehow irrational. Uh, And the reason is because thinking is ecological so it depends on the representation of the information. So I give you first 
the same problem that a doctor faces in conditional probabilities and hope that your mind will be clouded. And then I'll give you the same information in a representation we developed called natural frequencies, and you will see through the problem. Ready? That's an exercise in Bayesian thinking. So you are a doctor, you do mammography screening. What you know about the population is that one out in 100 uh, women has breast cancer. And you also know that if a woman has breast cancer, chances that she tests positive are 90%. And if she doesn't have breast cancer, chances that she nevertheless tests positive are 9%. So here's a woman who just tested positive. And she asks you, doctor, tell me, what is the probability that I really have breast cancer? And so what do you say? So repeat a base rate of 1%, a sensitivity of 90%, and a, a false positive rate of 9%. Most doctors I have worked with, and I've trained about more than 1,000 doctors in the continuing medical education, they have fog in their minds. They don't know. And you get answers that range from, yeah, 90% chance that you have breast cancer to 1%. So an easy way to help people to think Bayesian, and that's part of the study of ecological rationality, is to change the notation, the representation of the information, rather than blaming the mind. And there is a very simple representation where you think about not one person and probabilities, but 100 people. 100 women go screening and translate the probabilities. We expect that one of them has cancer, she likely tests positive, that's the 90%. Out of the 99 who do not have cancer, we expect another nine who test positive. So we have about 10 who test positive. How many of them do actually have cancer? One out of 10. It's not 90%, it's not 1%, it's 10%. So uh, that's called natural frequencies. Uh, the general point is that to judge the rationality of people is not enough to give them some problems, but to think about how uh, the human mind evolved in uh, how it's adapted to certain kinds of information in its environment. And probability theory is a latecomer. And for most of human history, there were no information like 90% sensitivity, but there were counts, and these counts were natural frequencies. And that can help, and, and we use this to teach doctors to understand evidence. And uh, I'm very proud of that the concept of natural frequencies has entered the technical terms in evidence-based medicine. And we already have uh, convinced the, uh, uh, the Bavarian Ministry of Education. And uh, since last year, every 11th grader in Bavaria will be taught natural frequencies. The past was they wow. were taught base, yeah? But with conditional probability, 
and 80, 90% didn't understand and thought it's their problem. Yeah, I'm not good in math. But you, you need to teach uh, people representations where they can succeed. Huh? And that's one way to overcome the rhetoric of irrationality by making people strong, boost them. And then there's no need to nudging. <laughs> we shall come to nudging. So that's, that's Bayes and natural frequencies. Before we move on to ecological rationality, I'd like to take a step back and consider four competing visions of rationality. Firstly, we have unbounded rationality. Secondly, we have optimization under constraints. Thirdly, we have satisficing. And then fourthly, we have fast and frugal heuristics. Mm -hmm. Gerd, could you please take us through each of those visions of rationality? Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, the dominant vision is still uh, optimization under constraints. So that's let's start with... Uh, full rationality. I mean, that's very simple. You assume um, that people are like God and ask the question, how would they behave? Yeah? That sounds uh, kind of strange, but it's in a way a summary of how many models are being made in many fields, psychology, economics, and other fields. Yeah? So you assume that people know the, they're basically in a world of risk, where the only question is to ask the probabilities. Yeah? So that's the one world. Uh, the, uh, that's a world which is true in lotteries and in, uh, in the casinos and a few other things. Optimization under constraints realizes that the, uh, <clears throat> there are constraints both in knowledge, so inside, but also outside, in the information costs and so on. So then the question is, also some one of kind of omniscient. So if I would know the future costs of information search compared to uh, the future benefits, when would I stop hmm. information searching? Yeah? That's uh, actually Herbert Simon had in his famous article that's cited for satisfying the heuristic type of satisfying, uh, in the appendix, uh, classical models of optimization under constraints. That has become uh, one of the main definitions of rationality in uh, economic models. So that's we are still in the world of risk. Now, uh, Simon's idea of satisfying was basically uh, the question, how do people behave when they are under uncertainty. So he phrased it when the assumptions of economic theory, of neoclassical theory are not met. And that's basically uh, when we are not in something like a small world. And here he pointed to a tool, a class of tool that's heuristics. So Simon came from computer science or Basically, he, he was a man of so many different disciplines. So one of his fields was, he was a founder of artificial intelligence, not only behavioral economics. So his idea of heuristic was totally different from uh, the idea of Kahneman and Tversky. It was the idea of computer science heuristics. So heuristics are tools to make computers smart, not 
heuristic tool that made people dumb. So to put it simple. <laughs> and so he was uh, thinking and satisfying was used by him as a general term for everything that's not optimizing, but also for a more specific model. Namely, did you, for instance, if you want to uh, buy a house, you set an aspiration level, or you sell your house, you set an aspiration level. And if a customer comes who's willing to pay that, fine, that's it. If nobody comes, then you lower it a little bit and wait, and so it goes on. That's a, a, a heuristic that needs experience to set the aspiration level. And it, uh, it, is, it doesn't need any kind of, it realizes that we cannot foresee the entire distribution of customers and uh, the world. The word satisfying is a portmanteau of the words satisfy and suffice. Did you ever meet Simon? Yes. What was he like? Oh, so <clears throat> how to describe a man who has so many talents? So he, he was a, a more humble person. He loved to argue about everything. He also loved to be a little bit contrarian. He had, he was a man who I'm, I'm, I was am, amazed how much he knew from computer science huh, to economics, to psychology, to biology, to many things. He, um, his daughter told me that he, she knows him reading books, 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 books and books. Uh, he allegedly never watched TV, I think. I think he wanted to use his time for something better. And he also applied his own theory to himself. For instance, at some point, he decided he doesn't want to waste time deciding every day what to eat for breakfast or for lunch. So he just fixed it and it made a habit and ate the same kind of cheese sandwiches and other things. So. He was one of these last people who really had an immensely broad scientific education. And I think he spoke something like eight, ten languages. And he was eager to wow. learn. A very interesting math. Yeah. But sorry, I, I interrupted your explanation of satisficing. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> shall I start again? Sure. Okay. Or, or you can continue where you left off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the term fast and frugal heuristic is a term that we introduced in order to make clear that we are talking about heuristics that are um, strategies people use which are typically fast and frugal because some of the heuristics in, in computer science are also highly complex. And, uh, and 
I consider my own program on fast and frugal heuristics and ecological rationality as a continuation of Simon, where Simon left because he did so many different things. So it is a continuation in several respects. First, uh, what I call the study of the adaptive toolbox is a continuation of to extend his notion of satisfying, that's not the only thing people do, to other heuristics that uh, help people to get through the day, that help experts to make decisions under uncertainty, and also that help organizations to organize the environment in order to improve decision-making and yeah, enable innovation. That's the descriptive part which Simon started. My research group and I, we added a prescriptive part namely the question, can we identify the situations under which a given heuristic is not only more faster and more economically, but also more accurate in making decisions or predictions? That was new because the, even today, the standard idea is that heuristics are, heuristics are always second best. Some probability theory is always better. And then the question never arises because it's unthinkable that a single simple heuristic could actually outperform, say, uh, a, a logistic regression. But we have shown that these things happen and they happen systematically. And this is why a world of uncertainty is different from a world of risk. In a world of uncertainty, it often happens that less is more. That means if you use less data or less computation, you get better predictions or better decisions. That should never happen according to standard decision theory, where there is an assumed trade-off between effort and accuracy. So the, the typical argument that you can still read in the textbooks is that people use heuristics, yes, but uh, they lose accuracy at the price of accuracy. It's easier, but you have to pay a price for it. Of course, it's easier, but we have shown that you don't have to pay always a price for it. In contrary, if you use complex models under uncertainty, you often have to pay a price for the complex models, not for the simpler. Or to put it very differently, less is more doesn't mean that the less you know, the better you are, although those situations also exist. But it means that usually you should acquire a certain amount of information and computation, but if you do more, it's going down. This is uh, an insight that is well known in computer science, where you know that algorithms overfit if you're too complex, you have too many parameters, but it's not always uh, well known, at least not implemented in many areas of finance or um, also economics, where models are built with lots of free parameters, and if they don't do well, more parameters are added, but that all adds to overfitting. So we need uh, models to predict the future that are sufficiently simple 
that means have few parameters in order to be robust. In a situation of uncertainty, if you are under risk, then, then just make it complex and use all the information. This is also an important insight to uh, evaluate when AI will predict well and when it will not predict well. So the big successes of AI are in chess, Go, uh, face recognition under stable situation. And uh, that's similar to the world of risk, of savage. But the moment we have to do with human behavior, so predict uh, the best romantic partner for you, or even predict the flu, uh, like Google flu trends once tried, uh, and in situations where viruses mutate, or people enter search uh, terms for all kinds of reasons, not just because they are sick, uh, but because they are curious. So then uh, the idea to fine tune on the past and hope that the future is like that is a failable one. One overfits. For instance, we have shown that a very simple heuristic that uses one data point can outperform Google flu trends that uses a secret algorithm with 160 or so terms. So that's a case of less What is, is the one data point? <laughs> uh, that's, <clears throat> this is, so uh, what Google flu trends predicted is the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the flu-related doctor visits uh, uh, in, the, in the future. And uh, the one data point is the uh, number of, the most recent number of flu-related data points you have a week ago. That's the only data point you need. And you can see that. For instance, uh, Google flu trends was uh, calibrated on something like four years of data. And it learned, among others, that the flu is high in the winter, low in the summer, high in the winter, low in the summer. And then it was tested. And Google actually made predictions, which is rare. Most of the uh, big data claims I see are just claims. Huh? but you haven't seen any prediction, but it did predict. And then the swine flu came out of the season and it flopped. So a, um, a recency heuristic, that's what people use in situations of uncertainty where the past cannot be trusted. So you just go by the last event. A recency heuristic can follow a, a development of, the, of a new uh, virus in the summer. And uh, so that's the example. How many different fast and fugal heuristics have you identified in the adaptive toolbox? Um, I would say I talk about classes of heuristic, like recency right. heuristics. That's all one reason heuristic. So you have just one reason and ignore all the rest. Then there's another class of heuristics which go sequentially. If the, if the one reason doesn't help you, then you go to a second one. If that helps you, it's the end. Otherwise, you go on. These are known as lexicographic heuristics because they go one by one sequentially, but they're still only using one heuristic. So fast and frugal trees are a good example for that or take the best. Uh, a third class of heuristics, uh, they use all the information, but they don't try to weigh. So uh, an example is um, 
So if you have the, uh, the problem to invest a certain sum into a number of assets, and the number is n, uh, so you could use Harry Markowitz uh, mean variance portfolio to calculate the weights. Or you could use what Harry Markowitz himself used when he uh, made uh, his investment, his own money for the time of his retirement. You could use, he used a simple heuristic that's called one over N. That means divide your money equally. So if you have only two assets, it's 50-50. Three, it's a third, a third, a third. So that's a heuristic that uh, is for allocation. That, uh, and it is, uh, yeah, there are a number of studies who have shown that it can outperform. Uh, Markowitz uh, optimization, and but the real question is not whether it's better or worse. That's a wrong question. But it's the ecological rationality question. Can we identify situations or the type of situations where one over n is likely to outperform Markowitz or more modern Bayesian models of investing and where it's not the case? And to understand this, uh, some principles from statistics are obvious here. So the more free parameter the model has, the more error it will incur, estimation error. And the number of free parameters is an exponential function of the, of the number n. So that, for instance, if you have only few uh, assets, so n is small, this will be to the advantage of the complex models who estimate covariances. And if you have a large number, it will be to the advantage of the heuristic. So this is the type of ecological rationality thinking. And there more, are more interesting things to that. So we have now three classes. Uh, then there's an entire class of social heuristics. Like, what do you do with your life? Do the same thing as everyone else, as your peers do? How do you study decision making? You do what the others do. And uh, so imitation and other things of that. None of these heuristics is good or bad. That's very important. Don't look down to imitation. But imitation is one of the driving forces in culture. Without that, huh, uh, humankind uh, couldn't have the cultural revolution that it had. There's no species where infants imitate so precisely and so generally as in humans. And that's the big advantage. Do you think that we need group selection in order to explain culture and imitation? Uh, <clears throat> there's a debate about that, and that would lead too far. I would say what you can say is that the <clears throat> social heuristics are extremely important, and imitation is one. Advice taking is another one. Uh, the uh, like principles like tit for tat or other ones. And these heuristics uh, in uh, the social contact yeah, define us. They're also glued to emotions. So a heuristic like trust your doctor is highly emotional. You basically risk your own life. Yeah? 
And if you're betrayed, if you find out that your doctor uh, recommended you uh, I, uh, a certain kind of drug, which he knew makes you dependent on opium, for instance, or something like that, then uh, the the uh, the reactions are, are highly emotional. The interesting thing is, and these are emotions are functional because they make care that uh, other people are punished and so on. Yeah, and also shows you that our emotional fabric, so the way we evolved, yeah, and together with the heuristics, are all made to deal with uncertainty. We did not evolve to deal with risk. That's an unusual situation. And the uh, decision theory, the standard mainstream decision theory can be defined as something that eliminates everything psychologically. There should be no trust. That's a weird thing. Huh? There should be no emotions. There should be no heuristics. There should be no storytelling, no causal stories. Huh? They are important to understand. And, and, and also the assumptions are that you're by yourself, you're alone. That's the Western, the so-called weird uh, bias that we have, as opposed to, uh, to accept that there are other societies where we don't maximize your own profit, if you can, but we're looking at our family or bigger units. So that's four classes of heuristics. Are there any other classes? Um, if I would know what all the heuristics are, uh, that that would be one of the goals. I think about it rather like a uh, periodic table of elements. So where the uh, maybe the, the better question is what are the the uh, building blocks of the heuristics. So typically, it's a search mm -hmm. rule, a stopping rule and a decision rule. So you, uh, you have a sort a fast and frugal tree, which is lexicograph gives you an idea in what order to search. And then there's a stopping rule where you have stop searching, and then there's a decision rule. So that might be more like the elements, like the elements of the atoms, like an electron. And uh, so here, here is, uh, your question is well posed. Yeah? We, we just don't know that yet. We have some ideas about classes, and I often struggle about uh, with questions, what could it be, for instance, on the extreme, what single heuristics would bring you through the day? If you just follow one, could it be imitate what your peers do? That brings you quite far. But yeah. on the other uh, side is um, a systematic study of the adaptive toolbox uh, is something that's that's desperately needed. And the the main obstacles are uh, that many of my fellow researchers still don't take heuristics seriously. You think it's a kind of something to be eliminated, that the heuristic is the problem. No. And the answer, it's a solution to the problem. So one of the criticisms of behavioral economics and the irrationality program is that it's spawned this zoo of different biases 
but lacks an organizing theory behind them. I like your periodic table metaphor, but what's the what's the organizing theory behind the adaptive toolbox? So the is it evolution in in the simplest terms? So the uh, the organizing uh, factors are certainly human evolution, human experience, and with evolution, it's also culture, and some of the heuristics they create culture. So if you wouldn't imitate, culture would be limited. And uh, in informal terms, I think about a distinction between building blocks, as I mentioned, like search rule, there are different ones, stopping rules, there are different ones, and to organize these. Uh, there are all a number of principles that have to do with ecological rationality, like the the key insight that under uncertainty, you need to avoid to overfit, you need to scale things down. And that's why stopping rules become very important. There are uh, mathematical principles like the bias variance decomposition from machine learning. I can't go into this, but it's basically the insight that uh, uh, if you make errors, it not it's not due to a bias. So ignore for a moment irreducible measurement error. But it's also to another factor that's called variance. And variance is the reason for overfitting. You have a too complex model. You incur measurement errors. You're not in a world of risk. In a world of risk, there is no error by variance. You can't overfit because you know everything already. And that insight tells you that a mind has to do a different trade-off. It's not between effort and accuracy. It's between bias, being biased, and being too overly flexible. That's variance and to overfit. So that insight tells you that to become rational in an uncertain world doesn't mean that you reduce your bias to zero. No then you will probably be worse off. You need to find a trade-off between bias and variance. So in simple worlds, a trade-off between thinking in a way or having a model that's not too far off the truth. But at the same time, don't make it too complex because that can reduce the bias but incurs use of trade-off. So, uh, take the example of Markowitz mean variance model and the one over n heuristic he actually used. The mean variance model has a bias. So that's the difference between its mean prediction and the real state of the world. But also variance. One over n has a bias, probably a higher one, but no variance. It doesn't estimate anything. It's an extreme version of a heuristic. And by that way, one can understand, one, that there are situations where it's better to ignore the entire data. So this is, 1 over n is zero data, not big data, zero data. 
decision-making. And also you can start to understand that that can actually be, under certain situations, the wise thing to do. How strong is the evidence that people actually use fast and frugal heuristics in the real world? Uh, it's, it's pretty strong. <clears throat> Sorry, there was a phone. <laughs> no worries. Can I break them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh. oh, it's this one. Bigger answer. Oh, Felix, can we später telefonieren? I've been on a podcast, yeah. Yeah, I rufe dich on. Sorry. No worries. Do you want me to? I'll re-ask the question. Yeah. How strong, how strong is the evidence that people actually use fast and frugal heuristics when making decisions in the real world? Yeah. We have run a number of experiments, and others have too. And the, uh, the evidence for a uh, number of heuristics is quite strong. And also should say that, the uh, <clears throat> say, in the 1970s, when Kahneman and Tversky rightly put heuristics back to the attention of psychologists, yeah, the common belief was people use heuristics, but they shouldn't. When we showed that when using, when we formalize these heuristics, that is what I think is uh, uh, the uh, improvement over the Kahneman and Tversky research that we did, we formalized the heuristics so they can be actually tested, they make predictions while availability doesn't make any predictions, but it explains everything post hoc, or system one doesn't make any prediction, explains everything post hoc. Yeah? So the, uh, then when we showed that these simple heuristics, once they are formalized, and uh, when we, and the other heuristics that we uh, discovered, developed, uh, that they actually can do well. Yeah? Uh, first, the doubt was that they actually do well. Yeah? And we published papers where we published the entire data sets so that everyone could calculate and find that less is more. Point. Then the argument came, so if heuristics uh, can actually do better in certain situations than, say, regression models, then it can't be that people use heuristics. Because the assumption was this belief in the irrationality of people. And and uh, the, uh, that's a type of argument. Uh, I just invite everyone to look in the papers, look in the research, hmm? and, and a, a heuristic like 101 is always a model of what people do, and they may not exactly huh, make it equally, they may deviate on that, yeah? but it leads you a prediction and you can test it. And if someone does Markowitz optimization, then the person doesn't use one over n. That's very clear. But that's not a, a refutation of the heuristic. You, you, you. Uh, if nobody uses it, yes. But if people systematically use them, for instance, what I find is that uh, professionals in uh, finance use one over n, but they don't admit it. Because then the customers could say, I can do that. Now there are a number of uh, uh, 
financial systems that explicitly use 101. So, in short, I think the uh, it is very clear that people don't optimize in an uncertain world because it's impossible by definition. So then the question is what they're going to do. And we have developed a number of heuristics, some of them uh, predict quite well what people do, others didn't predict that well, and others are used in very specific situations, and you need just to work that out. That example you just mentioned, Gerd, of how finance professionals internally use the one over N heuristic, but then talk about something different to their clients, seems to be an illustration of the element of truth in Kahneman's infamous system one versus system two distinction. That is to say, there's a difference between the process by which we make decisions on the one hand, and then the ways in which we describe those decisions to to people on the other hand. Or am I being too charitable to Kahneman? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So my my honest opinion is that the uh, distinction between system one and system two, which is not, by the way, not Kahneman's, he took it from other psychologists like Jonathan Evans, uh, is, in my opinion, and I, I don't want to blame people, it is going backwards in theorizing. So we had precise models for heuristics, which are now called system one, like lexicographic heuristics, and they're all uh, lumped together into one system one. We have precise models for so-called rational models, and they're not one. They are Bayesians, they are Neyman Pearson, they are Fishers, there are other statistical theories which are all lumped into system two. We are not gaining anything by making uh, by reducing everything to two words, which are based on dichotomies. By the way, not even the dichotomies match. So heuristics are lumped together with unconscious and with making errors. Every heuristic I have studied can be used consciously or unconsciously. And the heuristic can be better or worse than other models. That's, that's, I don't think that doesn't lead us very far. Of course, the advantage is mm-hmm. that you can explain everything with system one and system two. You could use just one system. In the good old times with one system, why did you behave the way you do? Because God made you to do so. So uh, my my own uh, uh, research program is getting more precise, make precise models where you can show that in a certain situation, uh, take the best explains what exactly 40% of the people exactly do and the rest do something different. Yeah, that's what you can say. So the um, how do we yeah, go ahead? Go ahead. So the uh, the the reason why executives uh, use a heuristic or a go by the hunch and not admit that is not to be understood internally or just internally. So the what I think one of the key biases in mainstream behavioral economics, as opposed to what Herbert Simon envisioned, 
and many other eco behavioral economists do. The main bias is an internal one. It's the same bias that some psychologists have by explaining everything that's happening by inner uh, yeah, desires or inner limitations without looking at the environment, the world. So a key reason why someone doesn't admit what he or she is doing is because the person fears consequences. So give an example. I have studied a number of large corporations on the German ducks that's like the Dow Jones and worked with them and asked the executives how often is an important professional decisions you make or you make within a group at the end a gut decision. Emphasis at the end. Because of course they are going through the entire data, analyzing everything, but most of the time that doesn't give you a unique answer. And if an executive then uses a gut feeling based on years of experience that tells him don't do that and follows that, that's a gut decision. Yeah. It is not what uh, what's uh, said uh, in uh, standard behavioral economics, hmm, where one experiment after the other one is run to show that intuition is going wrong. Hmm. No, uh, intuition is something extremely important. Hmm. And it's defined, I define this as uh, uh, implicit knowledge based on years of experience, hmm, which where you quickly know what you should do, but you can't explain it. And it's the drive of innovation. For instance, Einstein said the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. That could be a description of mainstream behavioral economics. So uh, the point here is, uh, in, in my view, you need to look outside the mind. You need to look at the, for instance, the error culture in which this executive is in. So the same executives, when I uh, work with them, they would say that about 50% of all decisions are at the end of that decision, but they never would admit that in public. They fear, and rightly, because they might be punished if something goes wrong. What happens then? They um, find reasons after the fact. And uh, so they may ask an, uh, yeah, a manager to find the reasons, and then present the uh, company decision as a fact-based decision. That's a waste of time, money and intelligence. Or a more costly version, they hire a consulting firm, which on 200 pages and a PowerPoint justifies the gut decision made without that being ever mentioned. I've worked with consulting firms and asked them the, uh, the principles in, in private, private conversation, are you willing to tell me how many of your decisions are to uh, justify an already made uh, decision. And the answer was more than 50%. But don't mention my name. 
So there are entire social games being done huh? uh, because of the anxiety admitting intuitive decisions, which are typically based on heuristics, uh, and then pretending to have a rational uh, solution in situation of uncertainty where you can't have one. And then uh, it's a big market for consulting firms, which could do something better with their uh, great people they have hmm, than justifying decisions already made hmm, and so on. So one needs to analyze the system hmm, uh, that's there. And I, I don't think that the uh, that these concepts like system one or system two get you anywhere. How does economics define rationality? Okay. Uh, interestingly, uh, economic theory has several definitions of rationality. So the most clearest one is consistency. So that may be the savage axioms, which are, are the basis for utility maximization models. So uh, so there are a number of, uh, of uh, axioms like uh, transitivity, independence, uh, that are necessary and sufficient uh, for a representation of a decision in form of a utility curve. So that's the standard idea. Uh, uh, it is very clear that this definition is not the same as what we think in every day about rationality. Because, simple example, if you, if you are totally consistent in your life, you can be totally wrong. So if you believe that the probability that Elvis is still alive is 99% and the probability that he's not alive is 1%, you're totally consistent but wrong. So that's the problem. It's a, a definition of consistency that is abstract, where you don't need any knowledge, that abstracts from any psychology, where we have the same story again. And violations of consistency have been used uh, in... Uh, mainstream behavioral economics uh, to claim that people are irrational. And the problem is that we again, consistency requires a world of risk and people's uh, psychology is tuned to other things that take information into account. They know something huh? and they go with that. And Hal Arkes, Ralph Hertwig and I have papered up uh, uh, have published a paper in the journal Decision, which has looked at the entire literature to see whether violations of consistency, often called coherence violations, whether there's any evidence that uh, costs are incurred so that people uh, who violate consistency more often are less healthy, less wealthy, or less happy, or anything like that you can measure, we have found close to zero evidence for that. So that's also something that might you think. So that's the one definition. My personal opinion is that uh, consistency does not give us a criterion for rationality as we understand it, uh, but it may be a rational criterion in certain situations. You want to be consistent uh, with respect to a friend but not necessarily with respect to your enemies.
it is ecologically rational. You need to define the situations where that's a good idea, that's not a good idea. The second major interpretation of rationality is one that uh, looks at achieving a certain goal that's less clearly defined. So that's your anchor, your ability to use what you have in your mind and the resources available to achieve a certain goal uh, in economics. So the concept of ecological rationality is much more uh, similar to the second one, but it's more specific. Uh, it looks at both sides. So how uh, what are the, how do the cognitive cap capabilities we have, including the heuristics, how do they match with the environment? So how, how do we, what are the situations where a, a lexicographic heuristic or just looking at one reason, where will they, they succeed and where not? So the reasons the heuristic that can outperform uh, Google flu trends will not work well if the flu would be well-behaved huh? and people well-behaved huh? where actually big data can predict the future. That's a type of eco and ecological rationality is much more a functional type of rationality. It's always a rationality for someone because you need to define a criteria. Mm -hmm. You want to earn as much or you want to predict correct. And then you need to define the strategy so you need to talk about, is a base rule here a good strategy or is it a simple heuristic or something else? Uh, and, and then analyze, and that's part of this mathematical study about what can we say about the match of the two. Herb Simon famously characterized bounded rationality, which I think for present purposes, people can just think of as being the same as ecological rationality, as the blades of a scissor and one of the blades is the mind the other blade is the environment mm -hmm. <clears throat> if we run with that analogy for a moment uh even though my mum always told me it was dangerous to run with scissors does the <laughs> potential for the environment to change over time admit of the possibility of irrationality so the um, this is an analogy is rightly on the basis of ecological rationality. The uh, and it has to uh, it analyzes the match hmm, between the say a heuristic and the environment, but it also has to analyze analyze the the change the 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 dynamics of the environment. And and it it uh, there are good examples where uh, heuristics have involved in animals that, uh, and then environments changed and they couldn't change at the pace. And the, uh, and it's, that's, that's certainly something one needs to analyze very carefully. So if you have a business, for example, how, how moths can spiral into a, a light or a candle flame, would yeah. that be an example? Yeah. Uh, and, since there were no candle fires there, probably. Yeah. Uh, or a very simple example, if you run on imitation, uh, so you you live in a world where you inherit businesses from your fathers, and it goes on, and uh, your father has accumulated uh, experience from a grandfather, and so on and so on. If this world is stable, and nothing changing, your world must 
to imitate what your father did in it just a little bit. If uh, the environment is changing, you're not well advised to go by imitation. So these are these. Uh, uh, it's rightly one needs to analyze ecological rationality not only uh, relative to the environment as it is at the moment, but also if it's changing. And there is uncertainty. One has to realize that the uh, by taking uncertainty seriously, uh, also the study of ecological rationality will not give you a recipe that is certain, because there is uncertainty in the world. It will always be. Uh, statements like, uh, uh, if that and that is the case, yeah, you will advise to ignore all information except one piece. If it's not the case, no. and, and there are situations where we don't know. But it also means to accept the uncertainty, the fundamental uncertainty in our world and deal with it, as opposed to trying to make optimization models suggesting certainty. But you don't say irrationality does not exist. Uh, I, I would want to define irrationality. Hmm? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good, good point. I, I guess I guess I just feel like you have been painted into this corner where you think that heuristics make us 100% rational and Daniel Kahneman's been painted into this corner where yeah. he th thinks that heuristics make us 100% irrational. But I, I don't think that your positions are as extreme as some people perceive them to be. I have some, I have four quotes from Daniel Kahneman that I wanted to put to mm -hmm. you and see what you think. The first two are from thinking fast and slow, his best selling book. The second two are from a journal article. So this is the first quote from thinking fast and slow. The definition of rationality as coherence is impossibly restrictive. It demands adherence to rules of logic that a finite mind is not able to implement. Reasonable people cannot be rational by that definition, but they should not be branded as irrational for that reason. Irrational is a strong word, which connotes impulsivity, emotionality, and a stubborn resistance to a reasonable uh, and a stubborn resistance <coughs> to a reasonable argument. I often cringe when my work with Amos is credited with demonstrating that human choices are irrational when in fact our research only showed that humans are not well described by the rational agent model, end quote. And the second quote from Thinking Fast and Slow is, the focus on error does not denigrate human intelligence any more than the attention to diseases in medical texts denies good health. Most of us are healthy most of the time, and most of our judgments and actions are appropriate most of the time. And then going back even earlier, this was the year 2000, a commentary written by Kahneman in the journal Behavioral and Brain Sciences. The first quote is, contrary to a common perception, researchers working in the heuristics and biases mode are less interested in demonstrating human irrationality than in understanding the psychology of intuitive judgment and choice. And the second quote from that article is, all heuristics make us smart more often than not. So what's the big disagreement? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. So let's start uh, with the first quote by, so let, let's start by saying the following. So Danny and I know us quite well. We have, 
of one, two, I've given at least three uh, talks in the 1990s where uh, Danny Kahneman uh, had a reply after my talk and I had a reply to his reply. Uh, we had many private conversations and I've always tried to keep an intellectual disagreement apart from a personal disagreement. So, and uh, his, the first quote was about coherence. And uh, uh, that quote is uh, perfectly correct from my point of view. Yeah. It's just one should also add that many of Kahneman and Tversky's famous demonstrations are about coherence. So, Bayesian problem, it's about coherence. There's the, the content is irrelevant. The Linda problem is about coherence, nothing else. And second, uh, so what he writes in 2011 is also uh, rethinking, uh, it's an afterthought about earlier, and also consequence about the critique he got. So, for instance, the Linda problem is about coherence. In the original paper, it's called conjunction fallacy. And others have linked it to every disaster in the world. Not Danny and Amos, huh? but it's called conjunction fallacy. One, uh, one of the, uh, when we showed that it disappears, Ralph Hertwig and I, disappears the moment you're clear what probability means, frequency, and other things, uh, Danny made a, an effort and changed the term into conjunction error, as opposed to fallacy. That's, uh, and, um, and, uh, but still the, if he thinks that, uh, I think he has now a, a, a good grasp about that coherence is not the only thing, but note that almost all of the uh, biases listed are biases of coherence, and they are typically interpreted uh, as irrational. Kahneman and Tversky, to uh, the best of my knowledge, have never used the term irrational, but uh, their close followers, like Thaler and Sunstein, uh, talk about lack of rationality, and Kahneman and Tversky have used other terms that clearly signal there's something wrong about that. The, the key difference that you ask here is if there is a discrepancy between a coherence axiom and people's judgment. In the heuristics and biases program of kahneman Tversky, that was labeled as an error. In my view, you can't put the blame immediately on people. You need to look at your criterion, your theory about rationality. Yeah. That's the big difference. That's what ecological rationality is yeah. about. Yeah. On uh, so so there's th th just to just to summarize that there's a discrepancy between the coherence axiom and then what people do. Kahneman and Tversky say, well, that's a failure of human reasoning or human rationality. <clears throat> You say, no, that's a failure of the model. Yeah, you need to check whether that's a failure of the model. The, uh, in, in other words, is the disagreement then 
a normative disagreement. Yeah. One part is descriptively yeah. descriptively descriptively there's a lot of agreement, but normatively <clears throat> you're saying hey, look, they're still judging people against the same benchmark of Bayesian inference, yeah. but departures from Bayesian <clears throat> inference are not irrational in a large world. Right. So the you can't understand the difference between Kahneman approach and Simon's approach. Simon's approach is also my approach. Is this. So Simon's was critic both of them criticize uh, the uh, neoclassical economics. You can't understand people better if you know whom they're criticizing. Both of them criticizing them. Simon criticized it on a normative and a descriptive point. So he was arguing that uh, neoclassical economics doesn't care very much about how people make decisions. They build as, as if models. And second, uh, these models are not correct under situations of uncertainty. Kahneman and Tversky adopt the first part, say, people do something different from the model, but say the models are correct and blame the people. That's a difference. And by that, one adopts the, uh, this is not Simon's idea, because Simon's took psychology seriously, while in uh, problems like Linda problems or the Bayesian problems, there's no psychology there. No, you don't need to know anything about taxi drivers or about people. You, everything, it's just about consistency, doing a calculation. And, and that's the big difference. So, Do you think Danny still believes in that model? Um, I haven't talked to him recently, but I have not seen anything uh, that he said that he would actually doubt the uh, the neoclassical economic models. So uh, I think we need a revolution of behavioral economics and also of neoclassical economic theories that allows the theories to deal with uncertainty and to test the tools that humans use there rather than to denigrating them to something which it's now called irrationality or just an error or something like that, that doesn't matter. And uh, the less is more effects are one of the key counterexample against this philosophy of more is always better and optimization is always better. And we need a realistic understanding of heuristics, taking heuristics seriously and testing them huh? and taking uncertainty seriously and not simply siding with a, a, th a theory that's mostly one of consistency, and if people deviate, the blame is on the people. That is the key difference. So the difference between mine and Herbert Simon points of view and Kahneman and Tversky is not that uh, Kahneman and Tversky see the glass of rationality half full, and we see it half, or they see it half empty, and we see it half full. Yeah? No, it's, uh, it's about the class itself. So we, uh, both of us, we, we did not take seriously that these consistency axioms would explain rationality in every situation. In the classic 1974 article, J 
judgment under uncertainty, heuristics and biases. They outlined three heuristics and biases, representativeness, availability and anchoring. Which of those three do you think is the most descriptively accurate? Uh, none of them, sorry. <laughs> so Kahneman and Tversky <laughs> made... It was a leading question, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Kahneman and Tversky made a big contribution about putting heuristic back on the topic. But uh, the heuristics that are, were favored by Kahneman and Tversky together were different from the model of heuristics Tversky had. Tversky had very precise models of heuristics. Uh, lexicographic ones, elimination by aspect are examples. The moment he joined Deni, these models were gone. And availability is just a word, has been never defined what it's about. Uh, there are, availability has at least about half dozen different meanings, and it's picked one. It is ideally to explain after the fact what happened. It is very hard to make any precise prediction out of it. The same holds for representativeness. The same holds for anchoring. It's never defined what the anchor is. So if you anchor on a base rate, it's anchoring. If you're anchoring on the new description, it's also anchoring. It's the opposite result. So what I think is our contribution is to take off where Kahneman and Tversky start descriptively and turn this, make the Kahneman and Tversky research more a Tversky research. So make precise models of heuristics that are testable and where you can show how many people yeah, precisely follow that and what the others do. And there's a good reason why people are not homogeneous, because in many situations, there's a so-called flat maximum. You can do different strategies and they all lead about to the same success. Well, that's one of the reasons for that. Gerd, as you know, I'm interested in speculative bubbles. Mm -hmm. And I tend to think of the reasoning that gives rise to bubbles in asset prices as falling into two different categories. One is like, and, and I apologize, this is all very amateur, but... Um, bear with me. One I would describe as horizontal heuristics. So we could probably roughly compare these to the social the class of social heuristics that you mentioned. That is, people look around them as to what their friends and other people in their mm -hmm. community and their networks are doing. If all of those people are, for example, buying mm -hmm. houses or buying mm -hmm. stocks in a certain company, then maybe they'll use that as a mental shortcut. The second category are vertical heuristics, where people extrapolate recent price gains forward into the future. And one example of this might be the work by Andre Schleifer and Nikolai Geniole, where they adopted Kahneman and Tversky's representativeness heuristic to kind of create a model of uh, beliefs and how beliefs can generate bubbles. Which of those two categories vertical heuristics and horizontal heuristics do you think is more important in generating speculative bubbles? Now, <clears throat> if I could explain the inner working of bubbles, that would be great. I can give you some ideas what I think about it first. Uh, 
it is subtle yeah. imitation will play a role. Uh, but in a minute, I will explain why I think one should not look at this again like a just inner process. That's the uh, fundamental attribution error that's well known in social psychology, which is committed by many of us again, again, and again. We always look for an inner reason. People must be wrong. And it's maybe a, a bias due to the individualism of, of uh, yeah, Western society, whatever, yeah? or just because of decision theory. There are no people in it, except in uh, game theory. And then it's, again, a world of risk. So the uh, mm. one of the reasons why bubbles occur, besides uh, you just buy whatever one else buys, you know, is um, defensive decision-making, to bring another thought. So, uh, together with the standard mathematical models, that's your vertical heuristic, yeah, that predicted the future is like the past. So, one needs to understand, if you have a, a, a prediction model like Bayesian updating or any uh, linear regression model, uh, you feed it with data from the past, you get a result and can hope that the future is like the past. Which is, in uh, if you look at uh, the world of finance, which is uh, usually the, the case for some years, but something, then something happens. So the models are good for se several years, but then they flop. And that could be a bubble. So that's one, I would say, that's one of the uh, uh, potential causes. It's a reliance on mathematical models as a uh, fine-tuned for situations of risk, where the future is like the past, but they're misused in situations of uncertainty, and that's the turkey problem. Huh? And uh, <clears throat> the turkey illusion. But there's also something else, I think, going on. So imagine you are a manager at a, a big international financial firm, and you know or at least you have a, an intuition that you are sitting on toxic, toxic papers and you should sell them now before something happens. Uh, assume it's 2004, you realize that, but you also know if you sell them now and your competitors don't sell them, and the uh, crisis is not next year, uh, your company will lose money, and you'll be blamed for it. And particularly if the same happens in 2006, it, they lose money again, you will be blamed again, and you may be fired. At least in 2007, you're fired shortly before the crisis happened. So defensive decision-making means that you do not follow what's best for your company, but you want to protect yourself in the first place. And that can lead to outrageous risk for your company, but not for yourself. You just 
were like everyone else, and you can say nobody could see it coming. So that's one of the, uh, uh, and there have been a few examples for these theoretical positions of whistleblowers who have warned uh, years before the financial crisis that it will explode and they have been fired. Defensive decision-making is again, not something that's inside a mind, but it is a, a, a kind of attitude, a kind of behavior that's often totally conscious, uh, knowing that the environment is set up in a way that you will incur costs if you do the best for your own company. It's very similar to the situation in medicine. Study after study shows that uh, about more than 90% of American doctors say they practice defensive medicine. They don't advise the patients the best thing to do. Typically, they advise too much imaging, unnecessary treatments, uh, uh, drugs, and all kinds of things because they know they won't be sued if they do too much and hurt the patients, but they will be sued if they don't do anything. So uh, these are factors which I would put in the center rather than inner workings, like defensive decision-making and a culture around that's a negative error culture. So defensive, take, let's take the example of the housing bubble that happened in the United States in the early to mid-2000s. Defensive decision-making would apply at the level of the derivatives, like the residential mortgage-backed securities and everything else spawning from those in, in that industry. But in terms of the underlying assets, the homes themselves, um, I'm not sure defensive decision-making applies. So what would explain the decision by ordinary Americans to start speculating on real estate? Oh, uh, that's, so first, I'm not an expert in that area, but there were a number of reasons, including Clinton's decision or hope to make it possible that every American has a home, owns a home, yeah? and mm. then relaxing the standards that the banks have. Uh, a number of external changes that banks uh, were not, all, were not um, lending money and then keeping the contract, but selling it immediately. So packaging and selling it. So a lot of changes in the world that enabled banks to make big, quick profit. If a ninja uh, bought something and then it was no longer their problem. Those things are all true, but the key ingredient was very optimistic beliefs about house prices. And one argument, a counter argument is, well, you can only say that in retrospect, and it's impossible to identify bubbles ex ante. But the interesting thing about the US housing market during that period was there wasn't much uncertainty around the fundamentals. You could make an argument that radical uncertainty applies to the Chinese housing market in recent years, and that speculation is totally rational in that context. But there was nothing really uncertain about fundamentals in the US housing market in the early to mid 2000s. So I, I just find it really puzzling that ordinary people, A, became speculators, and B, on some of the survey data, for example, the surveys Chip Case and Bob Schiller would run, people had 
beliefs about house price rises, which if you extrapolated them out, would lead to like absurd situations. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but I, I mean, I suppose we can explain that with models of bounded rationality, right? No, I would first look at what banks told those people. So it is, uh, we know that um, most of the American public, including also uh, other countries, um, have no education in financial uh, literacy. And the banks at this time had no incentives to make this very clear because they were profiting from the premium they were going. Huh? And so I'm always, as you can see, I'm hesitate, immediately blame uh, the American people in this case. They were so, so, so um, yeah. of course, they, were, they have no education. Why don't we teach in school financial literacy? And also, uh, in school, the system. And then it's not just people who were so optimistic. Uh, it were the experts themselves, at least many of them. So here is a quote from Henry Paulson, the U.S. Secretary of Treasury, in March 2008. He said, our financial institutions, banks and investment banks are strong. Our capital markets are resilient. They are efficient. They are flexible. So, or David Vinia, chief financial officer of Goldman Sachs, uh, reported that they were hit by 25 Sigma events several days in a row, unexpectedly. <laughs> huh? So, uh, they ha the problem was not that something really unexpected happened because a 25 Sigma events is something that shouldn't happen since the Big Bang. And so it's about the risk models. Let alone every few days. They were totally wrong. Yeah? So, and provided an illusion of certainty. It's not just the people who are, yes, uh, largely ignorant in the financial situation. It's the entire system that has also incentives to uh, blow things up and then, yeah, start again. Gerd, final question. Your in my view, the, the intellectual successor to Herb Simon, you're a great defender of heuristics and human rationality. But do you have a favorite example of irrationality? Oh, I mean, the, the, the sources of what's commonly said irrationality have little to do with consistency. Uh, on contrary, people which we would say are irrational or dangerous are consistent in their own beliefs, uh, in their own often strange beliefs. Uh. So one needs to look for something else. Uh, one of the key sources uh, is lack of education in risk literacy. And that, so we, we invest in the mathematics of certainty, and we teach that in school, algebra, geometry, and beautiful things. Very few are taught statistical thinking. And if they're taught, they're taught probability theory, which is boring, they need to uh, be taught thinking. And in a way that I can understand. Huh? That's one factor, which I think. The other key factor that things are going wrong is that we are social beings. The strength of humans is that we act in groups. So that has been the strength. Humans are not the fastest runners compared to other animals. They're not the strongest ones. They wouldn't win weightlifting against other animals if they would do that. 
And uh, so, <laughs> and the, so it's our group and that it demands a certain kind of group cohesion. And the negative side of this group cohesion is uh, that people uh, defend beliefs, as we see in the Corona times, yeah, which have no factual basis, but they cannot afford not defending that because they would lose their friends. So, and one means against that is education. Make people strong. That is, start thinking. It will not exclude all of that. But these are some of the factors that are dangerous. But all of these factors, uh, except not educating uh, people, but the social side have also its benefits. And we need to tackle that. And I think we are on the wrong road. If you just look internal and the individual mind and uh, think that uh, here is the origin of all uh, things going wrong. And heuristics are, as you said, huh, are a tool to deal with uncertainty. But I'm not of the opinion that heuristics are always good. No, this is why we study ecological rationality, which is the answer. When does it work and when does it not work? <laughs> I have to repeat and talk this again and again and again, because many of the audience are indoctrinated by thinking that something must be entweder either optimal or not. And that's the Bayesian theory. So there are so many Bayesian theories. It's, it's a, a framework with so many free possibilities. A specific Bayesian theory is not optimal. It's only optimal relative to the assumptions being made. And one has to realize that a heuristic is not better than uh, avoid the term optimal because it implies that you could actually prove what's best that you can do in a in a world of risk, but not in a in a in ill-defined situation that we have most of the time. What's best needs to undergo an analysis of ecological rationality. So the difference between what's now mainstream behavioral economics. And my position and Simon's position is not that mainstream economics thinks that heuristics are mostly good and sometimes bad. That's Kahneman's version. It is to analyze when they're good and when they're bad. And also to add the other sentence that so-called optimization models are sometimes good and sometimes bad. This sentence is rarely ever mentioned. And that's the illusion behind that, that helps the same thing. The question is, when does a certain Bayesian model is promising? And it has the same thing. If you use base rates, then uh, the future needs to be like the past. If it isn't, forget. Then you do like the Turkey you know, Bayesian updating, and you end the Turkey illusion. And that's very similar to what happened in the last financial crisis. So that's a kind of rethinking the kind of questions being asked. What is rationality? So if you say it's something, a method to reach a certain goal, then study its ecological rationality and don't start with prejudices about heuristics. Take them seriously and take uncertainty seriously and forget the illusion of certainty. Gerd Gurenza, you are a gentleman and a scholar. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to talk with you. 
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. For show notes, including links to everything we discussed, you will find those on my modestly titled website, josephnoelwalker.com. That's my full name, J-O-S-E-P-H-N-O-E-L-W-A-L-K-E-R.com. Please do subscribe to or follow the podcast, depending on which app you use, to ensure that you never miss updates when we release new episodes. The audio engineer for the Jolly Swagman podcast is Lawrence Moorfield. Our very thirsty video editor is Alf Eddy. I'm Joe Walker. Until next time, thank you for listening. Ciao.